Heavenly Father, we're thankful today for the privilege of studying, your, studying this book and studying your word and of understanding it. And we realize, Father, that it's not our responsibility to make things up. It's simply our responsibility to take what's in this book and to present it simply and clearly so that it may be beneficial and encouraging to each and every one of your people. And so today we ask, Father, in this service, and then, of course, for the service that follows, that the Holy Spirit would be the teacher, and that these things would be relevant and important to our lives and encourage us to be better students of the Word and, and better servants of our Lord and Savior. For we ask this in His name. Amen. Amen. Now, in our series, we've been we've entitled this series, and we've been on problems we don't have when we take Scripture literally. And the more I've looked into the Scriptures and the more I've read things on Christian websites, the more I've realized that it's not only that people don't take Scripture literally, it's that they don't read Scripture in the first place to take it literally. And I'm amazed at how little knowledge and understanding there is in some places. Now, several weeks ago, many churches celebrated Palm Sunday. And uh, one of the things that's interesting is if you look at some of the churches, they, they hand out palms and they have a procession where people come in holding palms and everything. And it's probably a very elegant, very picturesque service. But I wonder if they understand what they really what they're talking about, what Palm Sunday was really about. Let's take a moment and go to, to Mark chapter 11. We're going to talk about the triumphal entry and, and how the misunderstanding of it exists. And I think the, the, the triumphal entry is greatly misunderstood in many respects. And when we take scripture literally, we'll see exactly what it was about and, and why it really was a triumph, but not in the way people might have thought. But in Mark 11, now, the triumphal entry is recorded in all in three of the four Gospels. It's not in John, but it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke 11, or rather Mark 11, we'll read the first 11 verses as we get started this morning to see what we're talking about when we say the triumphal entry. Luke, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. I keep saying Luke. I don't know why I want Luke. <laughs> but it's Mark chapter 11, verse 1. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem under Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sends forth two of his disciples and said unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you are entered into it, you shall find a colt tied, whereupon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do you do this? Say ye, unto, say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by, by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loosed him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye loosen the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded them, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut, the, cut down branches off of trees, and strawed them in the way. And on, they, went, they, went, they went before, and they followed after, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Now notice verse 10. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered in, into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around about all things, now eventide was come, he went to Bethany with the twelve. Now when we come to this, this subject, this um, triumphal entry, um, it's, it's re regarded by most as being Jesus offering a spiritual kingdom. Because much of Christendom does not believe that Jesus Christ offered a literal kingdom on this earth. And so they view this as he's coming in and offering to the people a spiritual kingdom. And you, you read this in commentaries. Now, the problem, of course, here is that uh, even though Jewish leaders sought permission to put him to 
Jesus to death, it does turn out to be a triumph, but probably not in the way that people think of it as being a triumph. It wasn't a spiritual kingdom that traditional Christianity wants to. His, his entry into Jerusalem before the crucifixion was a success in a different way than it is generally understood. Now, Scripture reveals, you notice in my notes I have in bold font, Scripture reveals that his triumphal entry was not a success because Jesus was offering unto, unto Israel their kingdom with himself as the rightful king. That offer was rejected in these telling words. And this is out of the Gospel of John. And you'll notice what it says in John chapter 19. Now, if this were a spiritual kingdom, uh, these words wouldn't make sense. If Christ had offered himself as the savior of the world, why would they be saying this? And this is John 19, verses 14 and 15 in your notes. And it was the preparation of Passover about the sixth hour, which would be around noon. And he said unto the Jews, this is Pilate speaking, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now, something I didn't put in your notes, I want you to turn back to John chapter 8 to see something that's important. These people are rather interesting. These leaders are, uh, well, they're a little bit on the dishonest side, to say the least, because they claim that Caesar is their king. Now, if Caesar is their, is their king, I would say that in the true sense of the word, that they were in bondage to him. They were bound to, the, to Rome. But look what they said back in John chapter 8. And this shows you the, the way that these, these men thought. Beginning at verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, you shall be my, you shall be my disciples indeed. Or then you are my disciples indeed, excuse me. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, this is the same people that are going to cry for his crucifixion. They answered him and said, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou you shall be made free? Now, wait, wait just a minute. We've never been in bondage to anyone. If they're talking about the, their race of people, the Jews, it seems to me they spent 400 years in Egypt, didn't they? And they were not exactly free. They didn't leave them on their own account. They didn't say, it's time to go. See you around, Pharaoh. They had to be taken out forcibly by God. Well, they forgot about that. And what about the fact that Rome was ruling them? Now, we've mentioned before, and I read it someplace, and I, somebody put it in these words. They said that the, the Roman emperors... The Roman governors, if they were sent to Jerusalem, they considered Israel to be the armpit of the empire. The, the, Roman, the Roman nation did not like Israel, and Israel, it's no secret, did not like the Romans. So here they're saying, we've never been in bondage to anybody, but now when they reject Jesus, they say, Caesar's our king. We only have him as our king. Do you see the, you see the hypocrisy of these people? This, this is what they think we're like, and it makes it interesting to stop and look at it and say, did they realize what a bunch of hypocrites they were and how transparent the hypocrisy was? I don't know if they ever did. I don't know that they ever did, but they sure—they were sure something. But when we take the written word of God, literally, the triumphal entry was a success in a far different way. So our theme is this morning that the triumphal, triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem was a success because his rejection as king made him savior of mankind. Now, I asked the question in there. You'll notice I put in there, does this sound contradictory? How can his rejection be anything good at all? Can we prove from the word of God that it was a success? Well, we can, or else we wouldn't be up here this morning attempting it. So let's begin with something. First of all, 
Jesus was not offering himself as the savior of the world to the people. Now, the simplest way to prove this, many people will say, well, Jesus went around preaching the gospel, saying he was going to die for the sins of the world and he was going to be their savior. And, okay, if that were so, then this passage we have before us in Luke chapter 18 is the simplest way to show that, no, he wasn't going around talking about his coming death for sin. No, he wasn't talking about the work of the cross. No, he wasn't talking about the church in the future. Look what, he, look what we see here. And, and the disciples didn't believe nor understand that Jesus was going to the cross. Now, I have printed in your notes that you can see it right here, Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. And you can help other folks. If you have a friend sometime that, that says to you, well, Jesus was going around offering himself as the, as the Savior of the world during his earthly ministry, wasn't he? We well, can bring him to this passage and say, if his own disciples didn't recognize the message of the gospel, then how could he have been preaching it if his own disciples had never heard it? Look what it says here. Let's look, go to Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go, or if you please, we are going to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Notice, because, or for, because he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spit upon, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and on the third day he shall rise again. Now if you stop right there, those, those, those words are familiar. Those include much of what we call the Gospel of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That Christ was going to be crucified and raised the third day. Now, sins is in here. But they almost have the entire Gospel spoken here. And now, if before you read verse 34, you would think the disciples would say, well, yeah, we got, we got it. We got the picture. We, we understand. But look what it says in verse 34. This is unique. It's going to say something in three different ways so that we don't miss the point. It says, and they understood none of these things, and this saying was hidden from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. Now, point number two in my notes down here, it says, if Jesus had been preaching the gospel, his disciples would have immediately recognized what he's saying here. But it says three different ways they didn't get the message. Now, you'll notice I put it here as Christians, we ought to recognize that this is almost a complete gospel, except it doesn't include for our sins. A main issue there, that's true. <laughs> but Luke does something unusual in this in this passage. I mean, instead of just saying one time they didn't get the message, he states in three entirely different ways that they didn't get it. Let's take just a moment to look at them. The first one, and this is top of page two, the first one is that they understood none of these things. What that simply means is that they couldn't put them together. To understand, having understanding occurs whenever we can take facts and relate them together. They couldn't pull these facts together and make any sense out of them. Well, now, if they had been hearing this all along, then why would they not be able to understand it? After three years, you think they would have gotten the message. Talk about slow learners. The remedial class, these people would be in the remedial class tw twice over. But they couldn't, they couldn't understand, they couldn't put the facts together that he was going to be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked and spitefully entreated and spit on. And so another way of saying this is that the Twelve had no prior knowledge of these events to recognize what they would mean. They had no prior knowledge of them. So Jesus couldn't have been going around offering himself as a Savior. His own Twelve didn't under, had, had no way of relating. They had no idea what he was talking about. But we do know what, what the nation rejected him as. They rejected him as king. So if they rejected him as king and his disciples didn't understand anything about a crucifixion or a death, it's pretty obvious he was talking about himself being a king. 
Now, if you stop there for a moment, that should change your whole view of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. If Jesus Christ was offering himself as the king to Israel, then Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are talking about things that will be true in the kingdom. And that changes things entirely. It's, is it not for the church? It's not for our practice? No. Because that's going to be the millennial kingdom. But we have things in, you know, we have things in the epistles that are for us. Our standard of conduct is entirely different than what it was here. So Christ was offering himself as a king. And you can see this, his disciples didn't understand the gospel message, so he couldn't have been talking about the gospel. Now you'll notice the second statement, this saying was hidden from them. Which means hidden, it's, it's hidden. They didn't have the facts at all. It's not only that they couldn't put the facts together, now we see that they didn't even have the facts to put them together. So this is a double whammy. It's one thing to not be able to assemble the facts about some story or something, but if you don't even have the facts in the first place to do anything with, I would say you're out in the dark right there. You're very much out in the dark. And so the disciples had no awareness that they didn't even know about this. And the only times you find that Christ ever spoke about his, was in, well, for example, Matthew 16. Let's go to Matthew 16 for a moment. And when Christ did mention something about death, it did not go over very well with his disciples. In fact, Peter is going to take Jesus aside. And I think you, you probably have remembered this passage because it's so unusual. <clears throat> okay, let's see. It really, it starts back at verse 15. Verse 14, uh, Jesus asks his disciples in verse 15, Who do you say that I am? And Simon, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And, and I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his, his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Okay, that's interesting. Now notice what it says in verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things to the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. You'll notice it says in verse 21, from that time forth. This is late in the ministry of Christ. So he doesn't even start talking about his death or any of this until later in his ministry, very late. And look what happens. Verse 22. This is almost one of the most interesting passages that you'll find in Scripture because of this. Verse 22, Matthew 16. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not happen unto thee. Hmm. The, the, the idea of death and so forth and resurrection. Peter says, Be it far from thee. It's an interesting word when he says, Be, be it far from thee. It's the word we get propitiation from. Be satisfied, Lord. Be satisfied. This isn't going to happen to you. Be satisfied with the way things are going. So if, if they had understood what he was saying here, this Luke 18 would make no sense. But you can see it's not just Luke 18 that tells us they had no idea. You find it in other places. You find it here in, in Matthew chapter 16. They did not understand when he began to tell them. So from that time forth, verse 21 of Matthew 16, he began to show his disciples these things that were coming that we know of today as being the gospel message, then what was he telling them prior to that? 
well, it's obvious from what he was rejected as king, he was talking about things related to the kingdom. And so you stop and you say, if we just take the Bible literally, wouldn't that save us a lot of problems? Because if we have to go back and try to allegorize and make Matthew 16 fit today and match up with the apostle, what the Apostle Paul teaches and what Peter teaches and what James teaches and what John teaches, then we have a lot of work on our hands and it takes a great deal of imagination to do it. And we get ourselves tied in knots doing it. Now personally, I have a good imagination, but you know what? I would rather take scripture literally and save my imagination for what I for tall tales that I'm going to start telling my grandson as soon as he can understand them. <laughs> I, I, gentlemen, I, 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 I tell you this. I, I believe it's a sacred obligation of all grandfathers to tell their, their grandchildren, especially their grandsons, tall tales. Would you believe? Would you agree, Brother Scott? Because I know you're going to get ready for that soon. Brother Scott won't admit to it, but I think probably it, my grandfather was the most notorious tall tale teller. I don't remember how he got it, but there was somehow or another he got a banana out of the arm of the chair. And when we went home, my mother said later, she said, you and your brother practically broke the, the, the chair in the living room trying to get that banana out of it. We were banging on it trying to get the banana. That was my grandfather, so, uh, so I'm, I'm ready to do that. But uh, that's where my imagination goes. When it comes to scripture, we, we have no business putting our interpretation on it. If it says something, it means something. So if it says in, in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to tell his disciples, then he was not telling them that before this time. He had to be saying something else, and he was offering a kingdom. And that's what Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew uniquely is about. It's the gospel that tells you about the kingdom of the heavens. It's the kingdom that was going to be here that he was going to offer with himself as king. But of course, we know from John 19, they did not want him as king. They did not want his kingdom. So, then we see. He says, neither, no, guys, we, we covered two of them. Neither, they understood none of these things, meaning they couldn't put the facts together. The saying was hidden from them, means they didn't even really have the facts to put together. But on top of that, neither knew they the things which were spoken. And that's even clearer, because that word for knew it's a word that you've heard here at church. It's to know by experience. They didn't know by experience what he was talking about. They had no awareness of it. They didn't have the facts. Nothing in their experience would have suggested the facts that they couldn't put together. I don't know how much clearer or how much more emphatic you could get. That's a pretty, you can see why Luke was a doctor. He could write something this complicated, and yet it can be understandable. They didn't have any facts, and nothing in their experience would suggest what was going to happen to Christ. And they didn't have those facts, and they couldn't put them together because they didn't have the facts because they had no experience about them. All of us have a pretty strong way of saying that they had no idea what was happening. This change in the program of God that was coming, they didn't know about. Now you'll notice I put point E on top of page 2. These three statements in Luke 18.34 would only make sense if Jesus was offering the promised kingdom with himself as king. It would only make sense when you put that against John 19 that, that there's nothing else that's possible. He has to be doing this because nothing else would make any sense. Now, when we say Jesus was rejected as king, there's something else that we should remember. remember that there was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, you'll notice that on, your, on page 2, the triumphal entry was a fulfillment of prophecy. And now here you have a prophecy right out of the Old Testament that was fulfilled that the Jewish leadership should have recognized. They knew the scriptures and they should have recognized this, but they didn't want to recognize it. Zechariah 9.9, 9, 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on an ass, upon a colt and a full of an ass. Now I put after that, you'll notice in your notes in bold font, king does not mean savior. I know people want to try and make some kind of a connection, but to people of this time, and to ordinary everyday people, if you say king, you're not saying savior. Now I know it says he's going to bring salvation here. I know he's talking about that, and he did offer salvation, deliverance from the nation of, the nation of Rome. He's going to offer the Israel the deliverance from Rome, and ultimately there's spiritual salvation that would come too. But this prophecy is that the king was coming, not a savior, the king. And so when he got on that, that donkey and he rode into town, if they had understood scripture, they would have known this was the coming of the king. Well, and maybe they did know after all, because the best way, really, and going back to John chapter 19 again, the best way to show anyone that Jesus was rejected not as Savior but as King is this passage right here. If you're going to show somebody, if you had a friend that said, well, they rejected him as the Savior, well, what does what John 19, 14, and 15 said? And behold, it was the preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour, and he said unto the Jews, that's Pilate, behold your King, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now, if we take the word of God seriously, if we take it literally, then we have to conclude that Jesus was rejected as king because he offered himself as king. And so this changes the whole picture. Palm Sunday is something different than we, we think about. If you want to look at Palm Sunday strictly from the sense of his offer, it was a failure. He was not accepted. He, it was a complete failure. And he's going to wind up going to the cross shortly after this time. But it's not really a failure because it's a remarkable victory, but not the way we would have expected it. And this, is, this, is, this becomes fascinating because you look at point number two. How the triumphal entry was a remarkable victory by Jesus Christ. Well, you know, it was a remarkable victory because we know, one thing we know about Satan is that he will do whatever he can to destroy God's plan, to interrupt it, to do whatever he can to make it not function. Now, I want you to look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We should read a few verses in here, and as we do so, you'll see something here. Uh, God, for, God has had a unique uh, unique practice with Satan, baiting Satan into things, and then Satan fails. But God will bait him into trying something, and Satan will jump on it, try to do it, and it'll fail. The book of Job was a good point in illustration. We, as we spoke on that several weeks ago. We mentioned how that Satan was baited into to tempting Job. He didn't really come to get permission to tempt Job, but God pushed him out there, and so Satan took the bait. So Satan is forever trying to thwart the plan of God. And when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we should read just, a, we'll read down through verse 8, the first eight verses to give you the context of it, and we'll just talk a little bit about what's in this chapter. And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech nor of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For, or because, because I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ, and am crucified, and I was with you in much with much weakness and fear and in much trembling. If you stop there for a moment, refer yourself to Acts chapter 17, because this was Paul left Mars Hill and came to Jerusalem, came rather to 
to uh, Corinth. And he came there having really made a mess out of things on Mars Hill, and he left there fearing. And so when he came, came to town, he was afraid because he stirred up a mob. He insulted the intellectuals of the town, and he left town quickly without starting a church at, at Athens. It was an interesting story. And he came to Corinth. And so, and it says, and it goes on to say in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 2, And my speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and the power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now notice, now he's going to say what's going to lead right into what we want to talk about in this, in this chapter. Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, or if you please, mature, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to nothing, but... We speak the wisdom of God in the mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God has ordained before the world unto our glory. Now he's talking about things that are coming to us. The hidden wisdom of God that God has ordained before the world unto our glory. He's talking to Christians. Our glory. God has planned something for us. Now Paul's going to say a lot more about his other epistles. But he stops at this point and says that we speak this. But then he makes a distinction in verse 8. Look what he goes on to say. Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Stop and think for a moment. If they had known, <clears throat> if the religious leaders of Paul's time, or rather Jesus' time, if they knew what you and I were going to get in our salvation because of the work of Christ on the cross, they would not have put him on the cross. One of my professors in seminary was, was fond of saying, if, if they knew what Jesus was going to accomplish, he'd be walking around today looking for someone to put nails in his hands. <laughs> they wouldn't have done it. That's what it says here. So, stop and think for a moment. You look in context, we said in our notes, context, that, that uh, Paul is talking about the benefits that come from the finished work on the cross. Now, the princes of this world are none other than those that Satan gives authority to. And we should probably look at that for just a moment. <clears throat> because you'll notice that Satan runs the world system and he gives it to those who he wants to give it to. Now it's going to be pretty obvious that Satan is not going to give the power of the world to someone that is a man of God or a woman of God and wants to do righteousness according to the scriptures. That doesn't sound like what Satan would do. But look what it says in Luke chapter 4 verse 6. And you have it printed in your notes. And the devil said unto him, this is one of the temptations to Christ, all this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. These are the kingdoms he's talking about. For that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. So Satan has the power of the world system. It's in his control. Now ultimately he's going to lose that control. Ultimately he's going to be confined, and it's going to be over and done with, and he'll lose all of his authority altogether. But at this time, when, Christ, when he spoke this to Christ as a temptation, and it's true today that Satan gives the world system to whoever he wants to give it to. That tells us something. Without going too far into politics, does that say anything about the elections in this country? <laughs> you got it. It, it. I kind of think I know why things have gone the way they have in some of the elections in our country. Because behind the scenes, there's somebody that's pulling the strings and he wants to get his man there. And when he doesn't, well, I think we saw a lot of rage at the administration of President Trump. There was a lot of rage. I think I know where that came from, <laughs> because it wasn't quite the way Satan had planned it to be. But so, now, if Satan's plan, then, is to oppose God's program, then 
the leaders that get into government are going to be those that do what Satan wants. They're going to oppose the plan of God. So in the time of Christ, they would not have crucified Jesus if they knew what was coming. Now, one of the illustrations I think is really something is if you go back to Genesis 9, and for the sake of time we won't go there, but if you go to Genesis 9, after the flood, God gave two restrictions to the human race. As Noah got off the ark, he said that you can eat flesh now for the first time. You can eat meat. So guys, we can start grilling them steaks. And I know Brother Scott's on, on the program with that. We, got, we can grill them steaks, and boy, give them steaks to me. They, they have these artificial stuff, artificial stuff coming out, meat-freeze things. You can keep it. I can tell the difference between meat and garbage. I want the real thing. Since Noah's time, we can have flesh, and God said we can have it. By George, I want my steaks and hamburgers and pork chops. Anything, all of those. And bacon. But, and, and bacon. Yes, my daughter said bacon. <clears throat> bacon is a major food group, I think, in this country. By the way, I found my grandson likes bacon. He doesn't like a lot of meats, but he will eat bacon. So he, he can't be all bad if he likes bacon. But now, if you look at Genesis 9, we're not going to go there, but you can read it and you'll see that not only could they eat meat, but something else came along that anybody who committed murder was supposed to be put to death. A deliberate murder, a willful murder, what we call premeditated murder, they were to be put to death. Now, if you stop for a moment and think about it, does the world encourage eating of meat and, and, and putting convicted killers to death? I went on the internet a while back. You should do this. You should put in there about eating meat and vegetarianism. It's virtually a religion with some people that they sh you shouldn't be eating meat. Now tell me, why would something so simple as that be a big deal? Well, because if Satan puts his people in charge and God says you can have meat, just because God said it, the leaders are going to say, no, you can't do it. God said it, no, we don't want it. That's how that's, this is how bad Satan's people can be. And what about capital punishment? If you go on the internet and read about that, oh my goodness, <clears throat> they, people have made it sound like it's a terrible moral deviation if you put any murderer to death. You can murder somebody, but oh, that murderer has rights. Well, my question is, what about the rights of the person the murderer murdered? Well, did, he, you know, did, did that person get their rights? But it's virtually a religion, and it's like as though it's some terrible thing. And every time they put murderers to death, I've noticed they'll have people watch and pick it out there when they get to put this murderer to death, overlooking the fact this murderer took someone's life. Well, now, why, why is there such a cry against putting murderers to death? Because back in, Matthew, back in Genesis 9, God said, you put the murderer to death. And because God said it, they will not do it. That's how bad Satan's people are. Now, do you understand why Paul could say, if they had known what we were going to get in our salvation, the religious leaders, they would have never crucified Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? <clears throat> what does this mean? What this does to me is this, this is a remarkable victory because the fact that he was presented as king and rejected and they put him on the cross, that was the way that God got just baited the unsaved and went right around them to accomplish his purpose because we know, top of page three, what happened? When Christ went to the cross, what did he do? Well, look at 1 Peter 2.24. Print it out in your notes. Who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree that we being healed of sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Now, of course, we could put it in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins. That's an obvious one. But we could have put that in here too. 
and then Hebrews 9.28. So, so, so Christ was, was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So now in the program of God, because the religious leaders wouldn't have killed him if he offered himself as Savior, they killed him because he offered himself as king, and God pulled one, right? As you might you could say it in kind of a vernacular, God pulled a fast one on him. Once again, God outsmarted Satan. Here this being Satan is so smart, he can outfox God, he can outdo God, and it seems like every time he tries, he misses, doesn't it? This was, this was one of the biggest mistakes that Satan could have made, is when he moved the people to have them get rid of this man as king, he had no idea that that was what God wanted. That was the reason that they put him to death. And in the plan of God, it wasn't a change in the plan of God. It was in the plan of God all along that he was going to die for the sins. And the means to get him there was he was going to present himself as the king which they would reject in fulfillment of God's plan. No, God didn't change his plan. He wasn't fooled by any of this. This was the plan of God. And, it's a, and so the triumphal entry was a remarkable victory. Not in the sense of him coming in and instituting a great spiritual kingdom and changing the nation Israel. Because if you, if, as we read that one account in Mark, he came into town, looked around the temple, and then he left. Nothing changed. Nothing at all changed from that moment on. But it set in motion the victory. The victory was set in motion. And so God did it once again. He baited Satan and his people. They pulled the strings on something only to find out that they were wrong. And really, if you go back all the way back into the Old Testament, you'll find every time Satan tried to outsmart God, he blew it. You realize that. Oh, go back to Genesis 3. We have a moment. And, and I wasn't going to go there, but let's go ahead anyway. I will, I will succumb to temptation. Genesis chapter 3. One of the first attempts that Satan is going to make at, at messing up God's program to get his revenge is with Adam and Eve in the garden. If he can make this man sin, then he can ruin God's program. Okay, so Satan, Satan's going to do that. And so, as a result, man sins, of course, and is guilty, and spiritual death comes and everything else, and Satan is thinking, ha, 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 I did it. Well, look what it says in Genesis chapter 3, and beginning at verse 14. And the Lord said unto the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed above the cattle, above every beast of the field, and upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat the days of thy life. Now that's the, that's the serpent. That is the being that Satan entered into and used. The serpent paid a price. You see snakes today, I've never seen one with two legs. If you ever see one with two legs and two arms, you better, you better take a picture of it because nobody's going to believe you. They're going to think you were, you were, you got some of those mushrooms in the forest. That are, <laughs> they're not going to believe you. But so then he says this. Now, in verse 15, I believe he says this, and it's directed to the person that was using the serpent, which was Satan. And look what it says. I know it is because of what we see in Romans chapter 16. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He, now it says it, it's really, it's the pronoun, it should be he. He shall, he shall bruise your head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. He shall bruise thy head. Now, if you write underneath there, Romans 16, 20, it says that God is going to crush Satan under the heel of the seed. What happened? Satan thought he destroyed God's program. And what does he find out here? He finds out that he sealed his own doom. It says he's going to crush your head. 
you're going to get mangled. You're gonna get, that's that's means defeat. You get his head crushed if you're if you're fighting in the battlefield in mid in in, in medieval time when they had those maces that come out and hit your head and flattened your head out. You were out of the battle. You were done. So the first time Satan tries to get his revenge on God, it backfires on him. Oh, he does something. Of course, there's something else you can see in here too. <clears throat> If you look down a little bit further, in verse 21, Unto Adam and unto his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, you know, I've never seen an animal that had a zip-off coat. You know, you've ever seen a cow or, or a calf or anything where they could zip off their skin and give it to you? Now, if you're going to get the skin of an animal, you're going to you're gonna have to kill it. This is the beginning of animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice for sin involves salvation. And something else that came that Satan didn't plan is mankind has fallen into condemnation and now he's sinned. Now he's lost. Just like Satan. But wait! Does Satan have a way of salvation? Hmm, Satan can't be saved. What about mankind? The skins of the animals indicate that there is something in God's program. There is the plan for salvation instituted back here. Now, you can't call this the proto-gospel or anything like that, but we know that this animal sacrifice is about covering the sins of the human race, covering the sins of the individual. So God provided a way of salvation, but he didn't provide anything for Satan. If you look at Ezekiel 28, Satan has no provision. So now Satan really has blown it back in Genesis 3. He condemned himself, and he opened the door for there to be a way of salvation in the plan of God. And then we see later on, <clears throat> we get up here to, my, to, the, <clears throat> to the work of Christ, as we just saw. They rejected him as king. God intended for that, so he could make him a savior. And so once again, Satan was fooled in his infinite wisdom and his smarts that he thought he had smarted God. All he did was fulfill the program of God. So, when we take, in conclusion, when we take Scripture literally... The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ was a triumph. It was a far greater triumph than traditional Christianity would ever think because it's not some kingdom, a spiritual kingdom is here. Oh, that, that's coming too, but that's later. No, it's something that's far greater than that because when Jesus was rejected as the king, then that made him go to the cross, which is what God intended because God heaped the sins of the world on him and made him the savior. And Satan and his people would have never done it if they had known. So once again, it's amazing how Satan thinks he knows so much only to find that God, every time, wins the battle. Satan didn't get his way. They would have never put Christ on the cross had they known. And all the things that we have today, those benefits wouldn't be ours. It's amazing when you stop and think about it. Just something as little as this one thing. So if we take Scripture literally, how much easier just to understand what God has done and what he's doing. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Father, once again, we're thankful for the marvelous program that you have, the program that includes all of these points along the way. And each time this one, Satan, has tried to thwart the plan, he has, his plans have backfired, and Satan has only managed to fulfill your plan, Father. And we're so thankful that we can understand this, and this can change our lives when we realize that we're not facing an enemy that can't be defeated. We're facing an enemy that you have defeated and will defeat. And when we use the resources you've given us, we can have Satan leave us alone for a time when he's trying to tempt us as well. 
Father, may these things encourage us and may we realize what a fortunate people we are that you, Father, have kept Satan's plans from ever bringing to pass what he thought, and he's only fulfilled yours. And we're so thankful for this. Bless us now in the service that follows, we ask in our Savior's name.